If you have a Bible, we're going to finish up today. If you want to turn to John 8, and this will be The Truth Shall Make You Free, Part 3. John chapter 8, we're going to read again verses 31 to 36. And it says, John 8, 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, or truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And Lord, I just ask that by your spirit once again, you'll speak to every heart in here. Lord, I ask you'll have a word in some form for everyone that will help them through whatever time they're in, whatever correction they need, whatever encouragement they need. I just ask, Lord, there'll be a word for every believer, for every unbeliever here today. Lord, just for all of us, I ask you'll speak to us clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. We talked about in verse 30 there, it said that many of the Jews believed in the Lord Jesus because it says of the things that he spoke, because of the things he said. In other words, the words that were sown by the divine sower. That's what he was. Jesus in verse 31 at the beginning there, we've talked about this several times, but he made the test of a true disciple. It was a test of what? It was a test of perseverance. Those that abide in his word, those that aren't runaways, so to speak, but they stay, they stick with Jesus, they stick with his word, they commit themselves to hearing, but not just hearing. What's the other thing we know? They got to be doers. We got to be not just hearers, but doers of the word. A true disciple, indeed, will pledge faithful obedience to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the parable of the sower and the seed, we're familiar with that. It gives us four different types of hearers. So we're saying it's not just hearing, because all four, if you go back and read the accounts, Matthew 8 and Luke 8 and in Mark, all four of the types of the sower, all four grounds, they hear the word. And not only hear it, it says that all four of them, in one form or another, receive the word. So they hear it, and they actually receive it. And it's what happens afterwards that makes the difference between the four different hearers. The wayside hearers, the problem with them is they do not guard their hearts. They hear the word, it enters their heart, but they don't guard it. Here's the problem. They don't realize they have just received a treasure from Jesus. When he speaks his word to him and it says those by the wayside are the ones that hear. So they hear. But Jesus, if you read Luke's account, and it's, I think it's only in Luke's account, the other ones, it says, be careful what you hear. But in Luke's account, Jesus, it's a warning, really. He says, be careful, take heed, be careful how you hear. This is what he says. He says, take heed, take care how you hear. He says, for whoever has to him, more will be given. And he says, but whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him. What he seems to have, what he thinks he has, what in his opinion he has. That's what it's saying there, what he seems to have. You think about that. If you really think about what he's saying there, what a terrible thought. So you heard truth. You were actually there when it was presented. You heard it. You think you have it. And you wake up one morning and find that it is no longer there. 
and you don't even care. That's generally what happens. Some hear, I mean, it happens all the time, and they just don't think much of what they hear. And when that's the case, don't think much of what you hear or heard it too many times, something happens because Jesus goes on to say about that type of hearer, the wayside hearer, he says, then the devil comes, takes away the word out of their hearts. So it was there. It's not like it was never there. Takes the word out of their hearts. Listen, lest they should believe and be saved. You don't guard what you don't treasure, right? If you don't think something important, you're not going to guard it. That's just the way it is. The very thing that could have, he's saying, given them eternal life and saved their souls because they didn't think much of it. It was stolen from them. I mean, that's serious, isn't it? Had it at one time and they allowed it to be stolen from them because they really didn't take it that seriously. And the second here is the rocky soil here. And those are the people, he's saying, they receive the word with joy. I mean, they love to hear about forgiveness of sins. They love to hear all the blessings we can get from God. They love to hear about the fact that they no longer have to be concerned that they're going to go to hell. They receive the word with joy. And it even says they're believers. They believe they're believers, just like these people here in John 31. But it says this, as soon as the trials come, trials, temptations, and persecutions, what happens to those people? It says they don't have much depth to them. It says they fall away, fall away. They go away. They withdraw. They become dropouts. Now, I'm saying that doesn't mean people necessarily quit becoming religious, does it? <laughs> it can still be religious. Hebrews 3, it uses the same word when it says they fall away, except for there it's translated to depart. It's the same Greek word, though. And in Hebrews 3, it says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing, in falling away from the living God. So we got to be careful of that, don't we? That's the second here. The third group, the thorny ground, it says they also hear. But they've got thorns all around their heart. But it, it, the word enters in their heart and it says it chokes that word that comes. It's the cares. It's the riches. It's the pleasures of life. It even says there a little fruit starts to be born from what they hear. Little buds there. There's potential there. But it gets choked. And it says they bring no fruit to maturity. Now, the other day I'm watching National Geographic. Just happened to be watching National Geographic and they're showing these lions, they're attacking these bulls. And there's probably like four or five of them and they show how they get the bulls cornered and they kind of run off the adults and then they focus on this young bull. Lots of potential there. I thought a lion would just, you know, tear the thing up and that's how they would kill it. You know what they did to that thing? They're all surrounding it. Actually, the thing fell in the water. They got it up out of the water. Here's the way they describe it on National Geographic that they killed the bull. One of them had his teeth around his neck. but He wasn't like gouging at it. He just had his pressure there. And the other one had his teeth on his nose, his mouth over his nose. And the narrator says what they'll do is they will choke that bull to death. They'll suffocate it. Because they're staying in there holding that bowl, and that bowl is still alive. It was taking a little bit of time. And that's the point. Choking all that potential, that young bowl, full of life, full of potential, was reduced to nothing by a roaring lion, choking it to death. And actually, to finish the story, 
The lions went to all that trouble, and then an uh, eight-foot alligator crocodile came up and took the thing away from them, but fitting ending, huh? <laughs> the lion was robbed again, praise the Lord. <laughs> right? But praise God, there is a fourth group. We talked about the first three, and that's the good ground hearers. It's just like the other three groups. They hear the Word of God. The difference with them, though, is what Jesus warned us about. It's how they hear, because it says there in Luke that they have honest or noble. It says honest and good hearts, noble hearts. And those are hearts of integrity. The integrity is they recognize the word of God for what it is and they treasure it. It's a great treasure. And so they'll receive the word with humble faith and a sincere heart. And that can only happen when God has done a work of grace in a heart, because we'll see naturally we'll never do that. That's the work of grace, because you all know, we know the account of Lydia. It talks about Lydia in Acts 16, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That's how it had to happen. So the good ground here, it says, are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, it says they keep it and bear fruit with patience or perseverance. And I'm getting through all of this to get to that. That is what Jesus is saying. If you will continue, abide in my word. So these people are just the opposite of the first hearers, the the stony ground hearers. When they hear the word of God, Satan's not going to steal it from them. Nobody's going to steal it because it says they keep it. That word means to retain it or also it means to cling to it. No one's going to just take that away from them. They're guarding it. And he's not going to steal it, not easily letting it go. And they bear fruit because they continue to hold on to that. They're not going to let it go. They're not going to let go what it's telling them to do. And it says they persevere long term. And so trials come. They're not like the stony ground hairs where it just withers because of the trial. No, they've got good ground and they persevere. And then it says fruit comes forth to its fullness, 30, 60, 100 fold. That's the thing. They hang in there and persevere. How? How do they do that, though? It's by the grace of God. And here's what we need to understand. Sometimes you'll think, well, that person there, they're just tough or they've just got willpower. And boy, I wish I could just be more like them. And somehow then I could have the faith they have. And that's not what it is at all. We we need to really see that. It's not a matter that it's just the opposite, because I would say those that remain faithful to God, the reason they do is because they understand how weak and needy they really are because they're the ones like it says in hebrews 4 they come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need so listen strong saints are never the ones that think a lot of themselves and of their spiritual strength they aren't they really don't because they know that they are strong in the lord Their strength comes from him, right? Paul, he really wasn't a, you don't find him boasting that he's some kind of a spiritual tough guy. So the Lord gives him the thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. It says, if you read 2 Corinthians 12, Paul pleaded, that's the word, he pleaded with the Lord three times. Can you please, Lord, can you take this away from me? Well, why would you be pleading and asking that? Because he's saying, this is more than I can handle. You read what he went through. He went through a lot, but he's not acting like, hey, it's no sweat. No, he's seeing what's coming. He's like, can you please take this away from me? I don't want to fall away from you. 
And that's the great apostle Paul. And the Lord Jesus, his answer to him was what? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Not you're tough enough, Paul. That's why I picked you. No, he said, my grace is all you need. That's what that word sufficient means. It's all you need. He says, for my strength, the Lord's strength is made perfect in weakness. He's saying, Paul, you're admitting your weakness. Just hold on to me because you'll find my strength is there when you need it. And I think Paul, a lot of times, he's Hebrews 4. He's going to the throne of grace and saying, man, this is tough. It's tough the way they're treating me in all ways, not just physically, but emotionally. Friends departing from him. No one stands with me. I'm all by myself. He's a man. That's tough. And he says, but the Lord stood with me and helped me. So the Lord's telling us here that the ones that will receive his word, he's saying with honest and a good heart and persevering trials, the ones that abide in his word, they stay there hearing and doing. They are the true disciples. And he's telling us, if you do that, you will experience truth. Isn't that what he says? If you abide in my word, you will know. That word know means experience. You will know the truth by experience. And he says, and that truth will bring freedom which is what we all want. And so he tells the Jews that, and they protest. Look what they say in verse 33. We are Abraham's descendants, have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? What do you mean you will we'll be set free? And I'm sure they thought, well, look, we're Abraham's seed. We're his descendants, natural descendants of him. We worship in the temple. We can do what we want. We're free to obey the law. That's what they think. And Jesus goes on to tell them, though, in verse 34, he's like, Fellas, men and women, I hate to rain on your parade, but you people are slaves and don't even realize it. Because what does he tell them? He says, you are slaves of sin. That sin is your master and you obey it. Because what is a slave? A slave is somebody who's not able to go where he wants. He's not able to do what he wants. And he's not able to decide his future in any way. Isn't that what a slave is? A true slave, that's the way it is. But the thing is, most people, including these Jews, and most people, you walk, maybe some inside the church, I don't know, but you walk outside the church and talk to somebody, and most people think that they have free will. In the sense, they think, I can make any choice I want to make. Like somehow things are neutral in the choices they make, and they neutrally can decide what they want to do. And that's not the way it is. But, you know, in a sense, we do have, if you want to say it, free will. So nobody got in here... Nobody came in. Nobody feels like a puppet or a robot. Nobody feels like some irresistible, invisible force rolled you out of bed, dressed you, brushed your teeth, put you in your car, compelled you to drive here. And you might be thinking, well, it wasn't an invisible force, but my wife did, and she's irresistible. <laughs> but most of us, I would say, came here because we chose to. And most of the time you're thinking, I do what I want to do when I want to do it. But as one man said, and this is true, every man on this earth have minds that think, wills that make choices, hearts that have affection. The fall didn't destroy that, did it? Because of that, heart, mind, and will, people think they're free. The Bible tells us this, sinners, unsaved people, they do have minds that think, but how can they think? They're only in darkness. They're encompassed with darkness. Wills that make choices but they can only choose to do wrong. And hearts that have affections, they do have, but their affections are only for sin. That is the way 
every single person enters this world. By nature, we are slaves. Everybody is. Even the cutest little baby. So in a sense, those of you that have seen that movie, Ben-Hur, were like Ben-Hur was on the slave ship down in the galleys and all those other men that were down there with him down below. They could think. They had a will. He had affections. He's wanting to have vengeance on this Roman soldier that condemned him and his family to prison for life. But all of that was what? All of his freedom, in a sense, he had all that, but he's restricted because he's chained. He can't go and do and whatever. He's chained, isn't he? He's chained to that ship. And that's the sad truth is because of the fall, the fall of Adam, all unsaved people are unable. This is what we need to see. I don't know if people really believe this because people out in the world in America, we know how to socially for the most part interact and we'll think, well, this guy's a nice guy or he's a good guy or he's a nice guy. That's not what the Bible teaches because the Bible teaches all unsaved people are unable to resist doing the will of Satan. They can't, and they don't even know it. They don't even realize it. They think they're free. If you would, put something there and turn over to 2 Timothy, beginning in verse 24. 2 Timothy 2, 24, and Paul writes, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. And he says, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. They oppose God, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know what? The truth, because they don't know it. And it says, and, verse 26, that they may come to their senses, because they're out of their mind and don't realize it. And what does it say there at the end? And escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. They can't help themselves. They're captive of the devil. And yet they think they're free. They're crazy. That's what the Bible says. They're really crazy and don't realize it. They cannot do anything they want to do. You know, there's a lot of times I've witnessed to Muslims. You know, I've witnessed to a lot of Muslims in prison. I've witnessed to a lot of Muslims back when I was going out on the streets all the time. And many times they'll tell me about all the good things they do, all the prayers they pray and giving and helping others. I'm not doubting the word of that. They're doing all of that. So why do I need your Jesus, in essence, is, is what they're saying. Why do you know, need him? There's one thing that I know. You, they're telling me all those outward things they're doing. But one thing I know because of what the Bible says, there is only one way freedom from sin can come. Only one way. And that is through the new birth and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking, you don't have either one of those. So there is no way you are a slave to your lust. I'm not denying you're outwardly doing some good things. And then when you get to the heart of the matter with him and talk to him about the Sermon on the Mount, and it's not just uh, you haven't cheated on your wife, but it's that lust in the heart. Well, they all then have to admit, yeah, I'm, I'm in bondage to sin. They can't get away from that. You can know that talking to any person that's not a Christian. You don't have to wonder because the Bible clearly teaches that. They're enslaved. Jesus is telling us that with what we're reading here in John 8. One person in the universe is all that can set a person free from sin. Do we really believe that? Amen, we should. He says, therefore, if the Son makes you free, verse 36, you will be free indeed. So we're laying to the brave, home of the free, or home of the, however that works. But we're not, are we? This country is more enslaved almost than any country on earth with its sin. They really are. He says, if you, the Son makes you free, you'll be truly free. Truly free. 
Go back to John 8. Look at how he talks to the Jews that said they believed in him. Look what he says here in verses 37 through 41. He says, I know you're Abraham's descendants. I know that. I'm not arguing with you about that. He says, but here's the thing, fellas. You seek to kill me. He says, why? Because my word has no place in you. He says, I speak what I have seen with my father. And he says, you do what you have seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. He says, Abraham didn't do that. He says, no, you do the deeds of your father. So he's telling them, he's saying, if you really were truly Abraham's children, like you say you are, Abraham's spiritual descendants and all that, he's saying you would do the one thing that Abraham did. And what was that? Abraham obeyed God, didn't he? So what's he saying? He's saying true sonship is characterized by one word. And that's for all of us in here. It's one word, obedience. Obedience. They're the sons of Abraham. He says, you would do the works of Abraham. Hebrews 11 says this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive for an inheritance. And it says, he went out not knowing where he was going. But when he was called, he obeyed God's word to him, didn't he? And it goes on to say in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. So he's saying Abraham obeyed when it was hard. And if Abraham, he's telling them, if he was your daddy, if he was your daddy, that's what you would do. You would do the works of Abraham. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? You know, Galatians 3, we're basically piggybacking into this covenant that was made to Abraham. We are into his descendants. And we're called Abraham's children, aren't we? In that sense, because he's the father of the faith or the father of those that are faithful. And he's telling the Jews, look, if we don't have a heart of obedience, we need to question something, don't we? He says, you're not only not like Abraham, who would obey no matter what God asked him to do, even to the point of giving up his most prized possession. You not only won't do that, he says, but you want to kill me. You want to kill me, a man sent from God, he says, to tell you the truth. He says, Abraham didn't do that. He says, you then must have another father. Somebody you're obeying that's not like Abraham. And they got pretty offended with that whole statement, didn't they? And they tell him, it's like, you're going to dig at us, we're going to dig back at you. And he, they tell him, he said, we're, we're not like you, Jesus. We're not born of fornication because that was probably the rumor going around with Mary and the virgin birth. They didn't understand all that. They said, God is our father. So look what they say here in verses 42 to through 44. Uh, we're actually at the end of verse 41. They said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, verse 42, well, he says, if God were your father, then you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither have I come of myself, but he sent me. He says, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And the, this is probably one of the, I think, one of the hardest statements in the Bible. He tells them, you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, listen, when Jesus says those words there, he is not just picking on the Jews. 
You know, one time Jeff Lang was preaching through John and got to John 8. And because he would say Jesus said this to the Jews or the Jews did this or that. We, I get a call from the chaplain because we had some Jewish guys coming to our meeting at the time. And they're like, we hear you guys are anti-Semitic. I'm like, anti-Semitic. I had to sit there and think for a it? No, 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 no. He's preaching from John 8 and he's, we're not anti-Semitic. I'm Jewish myself. I got Jewish blood. I'm not Jewish. I got Jewish blood and trust me on that. But anyways, he's not picking on the Jews, is he? He's just, that's, that's his world then, right? So they're just like a microcosm of the whole world when he's saying what he's saying. He's talking about all of mankind. As a result of the fall, all of mankind, that's your unsaved loved one. That's the person you go to school with. Everything from that to the guy that has road rage to the nice little old lady who lives next door who plays bridge wouldn't hurt us all. But she'll never tell anybody about Jesus. She'd never do that. And that's who he's talking about here. So look what he says in verse 43. When he says this in verse 43, why do you not understand my speech? He says, you're not able. That's the word dunamis where we always talk about power. They don't have the ability. He says, you don't have the ability. You're not able to listen to my word. So what he's saying there is nobody on earth naturally has any taste or even not just that, not only just not have a taste for the word of God, they have no ability, no ability to hear the word of God and to understand the words. Spiritually understand them. They understood what he was saying. They understand the words, but they have no spiritual comprehension whatsoever. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He says, nor can he know them because why? They are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot understand. They seem like foolishness. They hear the words, but it's like, that's crazy talk to them. And look in verse 44 again. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father, he says, you want to do. A person who doesn't know the Lord makes choices, but there is only one choice they can make. People choose, Jesus is saying, and the Bible says, we choose to do what we want to do. And Jesus tells sinners, the only thing they desire is not the things of God. He doesn't say that the sinners do the work of the devil because he forces them to do it and they're stronger than they are. The old funny thing, the devil made me do it. He doesn't say that, though. Even though that is true, the devil is stronger than we are, isn't he? He's a lot stronger. So why does he say that they do the will of the devil? Look what it says in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, the desires of your father. What does he say there? In Duke King James, it says you want to do. And that's the problem. In the NIV, it translates that verse this way. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. The NLT translation says, I like this, for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. If you're unsaved, you know the things you do are wrong. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1. But you're a slave to your lust and you cannot give it up. I heard a minister say he counsels people all the time. And a lot of the counseling he's doing are people that are struggling with internet pornography. And he finds that a lot of times when someone says, I can't get the victory over this, he finds the problem is, is because they're not saved and they don't have any power over sin. That ends up being what needs to happen if, if they're going to change. 
A great preacher said this, he says, By nature we are Satan's willing slaves, volunteers in the kingdom of darkness, and by nature we love the darkness rather than the light because we want to do the desires of Satan. That's what sin is. Sin is not simply making bad choices or mistakes. Sin is having the desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. Now, people don't like to hear that, but isn't that what the Bible is saying? Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? If you would, put something there again in John 8 and turn back to Ephesians 2. And we'll see that that's what it's saying there again. Paul says the same thing in a different way. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, he says this, and it says, And you, that's us, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's putting everything in a past tense because he's talking to believers. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now presently works in the sons of disobedience. He's working actively in the sons of disobedience, the unsaved, among whom also we all once. So we were just like them. We're not better than them. We almost once conducted ourselves doing what? In the lust of our flesh. Fulfilling what? The desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. We had the nature of the devil. That's what it says. Just as the others. That's what the Bible clearly teaches there. But I would say this. I would say this. Thank God he doesn't stop the chapter in verse 3, does he? Because he goes on. What does he say in verse 4? I mean, those to me are the two greatest words in the English language. But God. <laughs> it didn't stop there. But God. Now look what he says. But God. Look at what God does. It's God that does it. We'll read through verse 10. We were dead. We were slaves. We were willingly doing what the devil wanted us to do. But here's what God did. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. That means we were his enemies. He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and he raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's not a single word, if you reread verses 4 through 10, where we contribute anything to our salvation. It's all God. It, that's all it's talking about is what God in His kindness, love, and mercy has done for us. It says we were dead in verse 5. He raised us up in verse 6. Gave us the gift of faith. We didn't even choose to believe Him. He had to give us the gift of faith in verse 8. And He's the one that created us for good works. He created us that way in verse 10. So he does everything, doesn't he? And he gets the glory. That's what Paul's telling us there. We have to respond. We have that responsibility. But even that is the grace of God. We know what it says in Philippians 2. It's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's all of grace. There's a book Spurgeon has entitled that. So we don't make ourselves free at all, do we? That's never the case. We're slaves, the Bible teaches, in chains. 
without strength, dead to God, it says, alienated to the life of God. And how could we do a thing to free ourselves? Nothing. Jesus had to do it all. If the Son makes you free, doesn't say you're going to free yourself. He says, then you'll be free indeed. How does freedom come? It only comes by the word, or I would say the voice of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we're set free from anything. The chains of sin, sickness, demons. So we were dead in trespasses and sin. The Bible teaches, in a sense, we were wrapped in grave clothes. Those were our chains. That's what you get the picture of with Lazarus in John 11. Because what did they say about Lazarus? When he tells them, roll away the stone, they're like, he's been dead now four days and he stinketh. And really, that's what we were in the eyes of God and in the nose of God at the point when he saved us. We stunk. We had a stench about us. Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, told them, "Mm -mm, you don't understand. Remove the stone. And they removed the stone, said he was buried in a cave. They removed the stone and it says he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And it says he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with the cloth. And here's what Jesus said to him. He's not dead anymore. Get those grave clothes off of him. He said, loose him and let him go. So he's saying the son came to set us free. And those grave clothes represent the bondage of sin. But once he's alive, get those things off of him. Loose him and let him go. And that's the way it is. That's the way it is with us. We don't have to be bound by sin anymore. It's the word of the Lord to us. So if you would turn to Luke 11, who the son set free, he is free indeed is what Jesus says. And look in Luke 11. In the middle of this chapter, Luke 11, it emphasizes, first of all, the importance of the Holy Spirit, that God will give this blessed person to anybody that sees their need. I mean, that's the way I read the context of that. Look in verse beginning in verse 9 in Luke 11. He says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask him? We don't understand how important it is for us to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he's making a big deal about that. Asking you shall receive, but he's saying above all good gifts, what you need is the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And Paul exhorts us in Ephesians. He doesn't just say, just move on with your Christian life once you receive the Holy Spirit and spoken. He says, no, be filled. It's a constant, continuous, be filled with the Spirit. Jesus tells us there, he'll give the Holy Spirit to anybody that asks, and you need it as his child. And then he goes on to give us a concrete example of this is what the Holy Spirit will do. He talks there in verse 14, he cast a demon out of a mute man. And we're talking about Jesus will set us free and he does it by his word and by the spirit. And here this man, his tongue, he couldn't speak. His tongue was tied up. It was bound. And look what it says, verse 14, he's casting out a demon and it was mute. And so it was when the demon had gone out, the bondage, the man was released. It says what? The mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. That's what they accuse him of. 
And he tells them, wait a minute, that's not the way kingdoms operate. If they operate that way, where you've got one power working against another, he says they'll fall down, they can't stand. Even Satan's kingdom's that way. So look what he says here in verse 18. He says, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? He says, because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But he says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God or the spirit of God, he says, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then Jesus goes on to tell us how he has defeated Satan and brought us liberty. And he paints a vivid picture because what he does is he describes a palace. He calls it a palace. So a palace then, it would have just been a very large, wealthy house, high walls. And he says the owner of this place, the owner of this wealthy house is a strong, healthy individual who is armed to the teeth. And he's ready to defend all of what he has, all of his wealth, all of his possessions. He's ready to defend it to the death. Because everybody knows that, they don't mess with this guy. And he says all of what he has is safe. Look what it says there in verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, he says, his goods are in peace. And that is a description of the world. It's kept, guarded, blinded, and controlled by the strong man. No one escapes. And who is that strong man? It's the devil. He is the God of this world. He rules and blinds the eyes and no one can get out. The walls are too tall. He's too powerful. He's guarding it all. Nobody's going to escape and nobody's going to come in and get anybody out. That's the way it comes until the Savior comes, the Deliverer comes. That is the way it happens. One mightier than the strong man. And look what it says here in verse 21. He says, but when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That is how deliverance comes from us through the power of the spirit of God. That's what the whole chapter, that's the context of what he's talking about. The spirit of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, it will set us free from the power of the straw man, Satan from his demons, from sickness, and from sin. That is how our deliverance comes. So Acts 10, 38, we all know this. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And what happened when it was that way? The strong man, he spoiled his goods because it says he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Oppressed because Satan oppresses the world, doesn't he? Look at all the misery, the sickness, the demonic spirits that manifest on every hand, the suicides that take place. And that word for all that are oppressed of the devil, oppressed means to dominate, to exploit, to take advantage of. And he says, the son of man has come. That's what I've come to do, to destroy his kingdom, to end this domination that he has over you. You look at the Gadarene demoniac in Mark chapter 5. This man, it says, they couldn't bind him with physical chains, could they? The demonic power in him, when they tried to, to control him physically with physical chains, it said he'd just snap them apart like they were little kids' toys. That's the way it says no man could tame him. Now, he couldn't be bound with physical chains, but he was totally bound by spiritual chains, wasn't he? Because it said he was naked. 
he would cut himself and he would cry out. And I'm telling you, I've seen that. I've been through that. Those are the worst chains imaginable. Here's what I'm going to say. With that guy up there, there wasn't a single man could help that man out, that gathering demoniac. Not a single man. There's no medication is going to get rid of a spirit like that. No medication is going to do it. He needed what? What did he need? So what Jesus is telling us here in Luke 11. He needed a word from the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't he? And he also, Jesus says, if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons. That's the only way those chains are going to be broken. And that's what he needed. The Holy Spirit could break those chains. Did Jesus counsel that guy for hours? Was he a psychologist? Is that how he dealt with his problem? He only spoke, you read the account, he only spoke one word. One word. I'm saying it's the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, go. One word. And those thousands of demons left that man. The chains were broken by one word from the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Entered in those pigs and they did to those pigs what they've been trying to do to that man all that time. Destroy him. And it says the town people came to see what had happened. And it says this, they came to Jesus and they saw the one who had been demon possessed and had the legion. But now it said he was sitting and clothed and in his right mind because his mind couldn't be right because of all those evil spirits tormenting him and the chains. Then we read. In 2 Timothy 2, these people are out of their minds. They're out of their senses. God grants them repentance. And this man, God had to move on him to where he could see, here's my answer. The Lord Jesus Christ came running to him. Somehow God opened his eyes to that. I talked to a guy in prison one time. He had all these bumps and bruises and marks all over his head. I'm like, what is going on with you? He was a mess. And he said he just couldn't help himself. He would bang his head up against the wall in that prison cell. And I'm like telling you, I read to him the, the thing about Mark 5. I said, read that. So I'll come back next week. I'll fast. I'll pray for you. I get back next week. He doesn't want help. Doesn't care. He's happy with the medication he's on. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'd have been, I was all set. People have to want help, don't they? It doesn't just work automatically. The power of God's available, isn't it? He went to his own hometown. He's got more power on him. The anointing's on him. The power of God. But they refuse to believe and he could help them. And guess what? He couldn't help them. That's just what the Bible says. I also want to add this, though. Do I think the man, he didn't get counseled. One word set him free, put him back in his right mind. I don't know what put him in that position. But do you think he still didn't need to hear the word to be transformed, to have his thinking helped? All of us do, right? Yeah, he needed that. It wasn't like that's just deliverance. is just like the instant, easy solution. But he was back. He's no longer tormented. Those chains were broken by a word from Jesus and the power of God. Only a word. Only a word. And it can be only a look, too. Isn't that what healed the dying Israelites when they were in the desert and they had been snake bit? You get snake bit now, buddy. They're going to stat flight you somewhere and make sure you get this whatever. If you're out west, that's what they'll do for you. Well, what did those people? They didn't have any of that, did they? And it was just a look that brought healing to him. A look at that right there. The cross. A look at the serpent on the pole who represented Jesus has judged Satan. 
He no longer has dominion. He can no longer bring death. The answer is the cross, isn't it? Healing in a look. And Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Who has believed that? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the question, isn't it? And he goes on to say, surely, that's the report. He's borne our pains. That's what it says. And he has carried away our diseases or our sicknesses. In Mark 9, that epileptic boy, we talk about him a lot. Wasn't he dominated and oppressed by the devil? And Jesus only had to say this. He said this to that young boy in the power of the Spirit. And his father's like, he's asking him, how long has this happened? Oh, this has been happening since he was a little child. Uh, that's a long time, isn't it? And Jesus only had to say this. Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. That was the end of that problem for that little boy the rest of his life. That's how he was released. That's how the chains were taken off by a word from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Amen? That is. Luke 13, the woman with the spirit of infirmity, a demonic chain wrapped around her back. She couldn't get up. Isn't that what it says? And Jesus had said he saw her. He called her to him and said to her, woman, we're talking about he will bring you freedom. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He says, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he went on to tell the hypocrites that couldn't rejoice in her deliverance. He went on to tell them this. Ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, a believer, it says, whom Satan has bound. Think of it. For 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Who does Jesus said caused all of that? Who is it that had her bound? The strong man, wasn't he? Until her Savior came. That's what it says. Sickness comes from Satan. Sickness, according to the Bible, if we're going to believe the Bible, is a spiritual problem. It's not a scientific problem. You can't deny what somebody's seeing in the natural, but there's a spirit that is producing what you're seeing in the natural. It is. We really believe that? Reread the book of Job. It's from cover to cover. That's what it says. They told me back when I was a, a teenager in a mental hospital, the doctor told my parents, your son has got a salt imbalance. I don't know whether I had a salt imbalance or not. I do know I, through drugs and meditation and going to seances, I know I'd opened up doors big time that allowed these spirits to come in and oppress me. And so they told my parents, they said, your son's going to have to be on medication the rest of his life. And then guess what? I'm thinking bound by medication. I'm going to be bound by these spirits the rest of my life. That's what they told my parents. Jesus says, you will hear the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth is, like the gathering demoniac and just like the epileptic boy, go out and enter no more into him. I heard the truth that I could pray, be delivered from those spirits, and I don't have to be bound and on medication all of my life. Whether I had a salt and bounce, maybe a demon could cause it. I have no idea, but it's a demon causing it. So what needs to go? Not the salt and bounce, the demon. Amen. And then you're free. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I'm so grateful for the truth that we've heard. Because listen, Jesus was the smartest person that's ever walked this earth. Smarter than anybody. He was the embodiment of wisdom. He was. He created everything we see, the things we don't know how they work, he can tell you if he could. 
He could. People don't understand electricity. As smart as man is, can't explain electricity. He could. The smartest person that ever walked this earth. And we see his method of dealing with any problem. I don't care what it is. We're going to stick with what the Bible says. Any problem was what? His word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And someone wants to show me otherwise, fine. But that's why I see the New Testament. I'm sticking with that. <laughs> that's what it says. In Acts 26, 17, Jesus said he's sending Paul to the Gentiles. Why? Why was he sending him to them? He said to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's why his purpose was. It's not just demons. It's not just healing. As great as that is, but the more essential thing we need to see is he's telling us that this is really all the context of John 8. We no longer have to live bound to sin, whatever that sin is. Because Jesus says practicing sin, committing sin, living in sin is slavery. Whoever commits sin, he says in John 8, is a slave to sin. So if you would turn over to 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. 1 John 3, verse 4, it says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is against the law of God, is lawlessness. And he says, and you know this, he was manifested. He came to do what? To take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Does that mean sinless perfection? We know that. It's just you don't continually live in sin. You may commit a sin. You may stumble. But you're not living in sin. That's what he's talking about there. Whoever sins... That's, like I said, present continuous tense has neither seen him nor known him. And this is pretty clear, I think. This is easy to understand what he says in verse 7. Little children, don't let anybody deceive you. He who practices righteousness does righteousness. That's what he lives. That's his character. That's his modus operandi. The person that practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. But he who sins practices sin, live in sin, that's his character, is what? Of the devil. That's what Jesus said back in John 8, 44. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And look what it says. Here's the purpose that the Son of God was manifested. That he, the reason he came. That he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, in context, what's the works he's talking about? Sin, isn't it? I mean, we will use that in in other ways, it applies to everything. But in context of what we're reading here, he's talking about sin. And because he goes on to say, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin, it says, because he has been born of God. So why have we been set free from sin? That's a good question, isn't it? And the reason the Bible teaches the New Testament and the whole Bible, and it's in type given in Exodus, he said, let my people go that they can worship me and serve me. That's the reason we've been set free from sin, to serve the living God. Because we couldn't do that when we were slaves of Satan. And Zechariah, if you read, he's the father of John the Baptist. If you read Luke chapter 1, he said, the Lord Jesus Christ has come, the, the Messiah that is coming. He's come to bring deliverance to his people. And here's what he said, to grant us, Zechariah said, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies... That's this freedom from sin and Satan might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. 
That's the true freedom, that we can serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness. That's the freedom that Jesus came to bring us. <laughs> because you didn't want to, and the new birth brings the want to in there. Now, we understand we still have a body of flesh. I, I was going to get into this. I'm not, we'll get into it another time. But that's what Galatians 5 is saying. Your flesh is always going to be with you till you die. And there's a warfare that's going to be going on. But the bottom line is we can win the warfare. That's the bottom line. We don't have to be dominated by sin or our flesh. We're no longer under the law as a means of being right with God. That doesn't mean we're set free from the law. That freedom isn't to just let us be lawless in sin. We're set free from the law so that we can be slaves of God. Slaves of God in holiness. And that's true freedom. So let me just quote this from Paul. This is in, in Romans 6. We read this last week. He says, What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And he said, God forbid. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? So you got two choices, he says, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience, that's Abraham's children, leading to righteousness. And Paul says, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we're somebody's slaves. You know, I'm not going to say that old Bob Dylan song again, but you got to serve somebody. That's the way the song is. And that's the truth. We do. Let me end with this. I told you guys a, a little bit back about Kenny from LaGrange Prison. And I won't get into what he did. I don't know, even know exactly everything he did. He told me a little bit. And I'll just put it this way. He was a very wicked person. I mean, by his own admission. And did things, I mean, that were terrible he had a terrible background. His father was a drunk. His father abused him. His mother was a mess. And because of the things he did, he got a life sentence. And he told me he went before the parole board there. The way it works now is you sit in a room. You don't actually appear in person before a parole board. They take you to a room with a guard and they do a video thing. And the parole board's in Frankfurt and he's in LaGrange and he's doing this via video. But he said he went before that parole board 11 times. 11 times and he says every time they'd ask him the same question why did you do what you did and he said each time he gave him the same answer so he admitted what he did but he would say well I had a bad childhood my father was a drunk I was abused my mother was no good and he said all that was true he wasn't making any of that up that was true and he said 11 times he came before them 11 times they asked the same question and 11 times he gave that answer for why he did what he did. And 11 times, he was turned down for parole. And he told me this, though. He said, I'm going to tell you, though, this is what I, I knew through all this, that at the point God saved him, it happened because he read the Bible. I told you about that. He started reading the Bible through all the time because his grandfather did. And he said, that's how I got saved, from reading the Word. And what he got from that was that he was a wicked person. And he asked himself, Why? Why am I a wicked person like I am? That was the question. And that's the question that we all have to be honest with about ourselves. Why do I sin when I sin? So he told me, he clearly saw by reading the Bible that he had a demonic spirit in him, more than one, driving him, that had bound him, drove him to do things. He goes, I'm doing things that made no sense at all. No sense at all. I won't get into all of what he said he did, but he also said he saw this truth and he said this was the turning point for him. He said, I did all the evil things I did 
even though I had this spirit, he says, I realized I did him because I wanted to. He says, I was controlled by the devil, but I did what I wanted to do. And that's what Jesus says in John 8, 44 that we read. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. And Kenny saw that. Because he said, that was the question for me. I knew I had a spirit drive, but why? And he says, I realized it's because I wanted to and I needed the want to changed. And he cried out to Jesus. He said, I need to have my heart changed. Give me a new want to. And the Lord did that for him. As far as I could tell, he's a changed man. So this last time, he just went before the parole board. And he decided, he said, I just made up my mind. This time, I'm going to tell them, not that he ever lied. He says, I'm going to tell them the whole truth. So they come before him again. And they say, why did you commit the crimes he did? <laughs> and he said, well, I did it because I had this demonic. He said, well, I had these bad parents. He went through. He said, well, let me tell you what really is the case. This is really the bottom line. He said, I had this evil spirit that was controlling me causing me to do the things he goes but I'm going to tell you what else he goes I did what I did because I wanted to I wanted to do those things he goes but that's not the end of the story he said at this point however long it was he said God came down he he saved me he changed my heart gave me new desires and he said all I can tell you is I've got 11 years of good conduct here he goes that wasn't me before and it wasn't he said that's all I can show you that I am a changed person and all that he told me, he said, man, I'm just thinking when I tell them that about a spirit and God changing me, and he goes, I'm figuring they're going to think I'm crazy, and this is the last. They won't even talk to me anymore. And he said, that's really what he thought. He goes, I'm just going to get it out there, though. That's my testimony. I'm going to tell them the truth. So they say, well, you just hold on. We'll get right back with you. And the screen goes black. And he said, he's sitting there waiting, him and his guard. And a little bit later, said it seemed like an eternity. The screen comes back on, and the man on the screen says whatever. And he goes, well, Kenny, we decided we're going to give you parole. And Kenny's like... What? And he's just sitting there. And he said that guy told him, I mean, I don't know, was it Greg, about two or three times, right? I had to keep telling him. And then Kenny's just like, he's stunned. He's like, well, what did you say? Kept saying, the guy's like, look, Kenny, don't you understand what I'm saying? And Kenny's like, no, I understand the words. <laughs> he said, but you got to understand, I'm like a caged animal that's been locked up for 15 years. And all of a sudden you're opening the door and telling me I can go on out. He goes, you know, I'm going to have to get adjusted to this. That's going to take me a minute to get used to the good news. But here, to me, that testimony to me, and he kept telling me, he goes, John, you know, it says in the Bible, I didn't tell him what I was preaching here. This is just a few couple weeks ago he told me this. He goes, it says in the Bible, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. And that's literally what happened to him. Amen. When he just said, hey, he realized for his own life, he was free before he ever got let free, though. But when he was able to realize that, hey, he's not offended when Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. He's like, that's me. There's spirits driving me, but I'm doing it because I willingly want to do it. And when he admitted that and asked Jesus to come and save and help him, guess what? He was free. And that's what Jesus says he'll do for us, won't he? Amen. Therefore, if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If you continue in my word, he says, the truth will make you free. But that doesn't mean the truth may not hurt or the truth won't make demands because it will. But the truth will set us free. And it's by the word and it's by the spirit of God, because it says in Second Corinthians three. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that's 
everywhere in your personal life and in a church. And that's why we need to pray and on our knees and seeking God that the spirit of God can be in our lives and in our church. Because without that, we're back in bondage, aren't we? Amen. Amen. Uh, That's all for today. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the words you've given us, Lord, and that we can know the truth and that truth will set us free, Lord. And I just ask that you'll help us, Lord, to continue to cling to your word, to hold on to that. And also, Father, to press in that we can have the power of your spirit manifested in our church and in our lives to make that word effective and come true in our lives. Father, I just ask you to press that upon all of us. And if there's anyone here, Lord, today that realizes they are a slave of Satan, that they can't stop sinning, that you'll show them, Lord, that by the new birth and the power of the Spirit, you can break those chains and they can be truly free. I just ask you'll speak to them and and draw them to yourself. And that's my prayer and the prayer of our church here in Jesus' name. Amen.